Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show. And this week, I am joined by Matt Yerke from Trek to talk about the new high pivot slash that has been floating around on the internet for a little while now and just formally launched today. Matt is the lead engineer from the Slash project, and he's, of course, got a lot to say about the design of the bike, Trek's goals for it, how they went about accomplishing all of that, and we go pretty deep on the design and particulars of the bike and also get into it about just a bunch of stuff about high pivot bike design in general, the trade-offs there. Matt tells some stories about Trek's development process, including the fact that they actually considered making the Fuel EX trail bike a high pivot before the Slash rolled around, and a whole lot more. It's a fun one. There's a lot of cool stuff in here, and we get pretty nerdy about some of the design attributes of the new Slash, which I've also been riding a bunch, and if you're a Blister member, you can check out our flash review of that bike up on the site there's a link in the show notes along with the link to the first look with the whole rundown on the design of the bike and all that good stuff so check that out and i think you're really going to enjoy this one it's a cool conversation about a pretty interesting new bike the new trek slash matt great to sit down and chat how are you doing and where are you this morning hey david Good to sit down and chat with you too. I'm doing well this morning. Um, Slash launch is a week away today, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Hattie just raced it for the first time, so I'm stoked about that too. And I'm in our office in Waterloo, Wisconsin. Yeah, well, as you kind of touched on there, main topic of conversation here is the new Slash, which will, will be coming out the day that we air this. So I guess before we get into the particulars of the bike here, can you just tell us a little bit about what you do at Trek and what role you had in the development of this new Slash? Yeah, definitely. So at Trek, I'm on the mountain bike engineering team. I'm one of the design engineers. And um, so our team is responsible for bringing all the mountain bikes that Trek has to market. And with respect to this particular bike, I started with a blank screen and had a big part designing it. Um, but like all the bikes that we release, it's a real team effort. So obviously well-situated to get into the, some of the details of the bike here, given all that. But I guess to kick it off, like, as you said, if you had a kind of a blank slate to start from, what was, we'll get into where you ended up in a bit here, but what sort of was the design brief that you had or what were you targeting in terms of the goals for the bike and what were kind of, what were you hoping to update from the prior gen one in particular? Like any big brand in the mountain bike business, we have a lot of different riders that we try to accommodate with any one of our designs Um, all the way from our EDR team to the average buyer looking to buy um, more of an entry-level bike. So the goals were pretty wide-ranging on this bike, but I would say that the overwhelming sort of thought on it was a bike that inspires confidence. And that was the the word that we kind of held throughout the project. 
Okay. And I mean, I guess for general parameters here, we're talking about a long travel enduro bike. Prior Gen 1 was, what, 160 rear with a 170 fork. Um, you've bumped that up 10 millimeters in the rear to 170, 170 on the new one. So inspiring confidence and makes sense for that general category of thing. But let's get a little more specific. I mean, what sort of stuff did you sort of see as being the potential areas for improvement on the old bike and more specifically kind of what sort of a direction did you want to take the new one in? Right, right. So I'll, um, I guess I'll start out with the first proto we made, which was actually a prior gen bike. So I guess we would call that the gen five. Um, we actually just made some new rear ends for that in-house, some aluminum rear ends. And with that, what we did is we had an adjustable rear center. It was 10 millimeters adjustable, but the shortest setting was actually longer than the stock rear end. So the previous gen bike had about a 435 millimeter chainstay length, um, give or take a little bit. So this one was adjustable from 445 to 455. So a big goal that I wanted to accomplish with that first prototype was um, a more of a balanced feel, especially for taller riders. So we did some blind testing with that in a few different locations and got some results uh, that definitely helped us guide um, how to balance the bike front to rear better in, the, in this bike. Okay. So in, when you're talking about front to rear balance, you're kind of talking just like weight distribution and the fact that the, particularly on the bigger sizes for the Gen 5 bike, chainstays were kind of short for how long the front center was, I guess, is my, yeah, if I'm interpreting that right. So that was the first step, but fair to say that didn't stop there because the end result is not exactly just the old bike with a longer chainstay. So having having come to that conclusion that you've learned some stuff about uh, weight balance, Where'd you go from there? What were the next steps? Yeah. So our current, um, our current downhill bike is a high pivot bike. As most people have seen the, the slash that we're, we're launching this fall is a high pivot slash. Um, so during the development of that bike, we learned a lot about, um, high pivots and sort of the benefits that we could see in a long travel category. Um, the bike that followed the session was in, in our development timeline was the fuel EX and believe it or not, we actually made some fuel EX high pivot prototypes. Um, we learned a bunch through those two or three generations. I can't remember. Um, but during that prototype development, we decided that high pivot is inappropriate for that bike. Um, so you got the result that we've seen had and have had good success with. But during the Fuel EX project, we kept saying this could probably work really well on, on a slash. So after the front center, rear center prototype, we created a slash high pivot prototype. Um, and then test rode that with a, a big group of people. Um, that one was 
much different from a Trek convention. Again, we, we learned a lot from that one and actually moved on to a full carbon prototype that's more along the lines of the production. Mm-hmm. Okay, a lot to tease out there. So I guess first things first, going into the slash development here, you know, having learned what you did from the fuel EX development process and having experimented with those high pivot versions of that that you mentioned, how sure were you that you were going to wind up going high pivot with the slash or was there still some kind of back and forth at that stage of like, we think this could work, but we want to try it a bit more first before we're ready to commit. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was definitely some, some more back and forth before we wanted to commit. Um, we were pretty sure that we could make it work, but we weren't fully sure that we could make it work. Okay. And so what were the, questions that you wanted to answer then to kind of decide that hype if it was in fact the path forward or you know what did you see as being the principal trade-offs involved there right yeah so i think most of the listeners will understand some of the benefits of a high pivot going downhill um but the, the big challenge was whether or not we can make a high pivot bike go uphill as well as most slash users use their bikes. So that was the biggest challenge was making sure that we could reap all of the benefits that we saw on the session while still able to, while still being able to get to the top of the hill. What do you sort of see as being the challenges of a high pivot layout on that front? Are we talking just pedaling efficiency in terms of drivetrain drag or more on the suspension movement side of things? Or what are we talking about there? Right. I would say both. Um, so both how much the drive chain moves and from pedal and chain input and then also drag. So we, through all of our protos, we learned a lot. Um, I would say our first fuel EX proto with a high pivot rode really well downhill and could climb well, but it had some drawbacks that we addressed with the next generation and, um, so on throughout all the generations of our prototype until we got to the best one yet, which is the production bike. Sure. And kind of, at least in broad strokes, what do you sort of see as being the key elements of making high pivot bike pedal? Well, um, so first one is anti-squat, um, talking in percentages, we really wanted to have a bike that had, roughly a 100% anti-squat curve throughout the travel of the bike and in most of the gears. Um, so we knew that sort of coming from our more um, uphill oriented bikes, like the top fuel and the super caliber, those both have a, a flatter anti-squat curve. Um, there are a bunch of us on the team that really like the way those bikes go uphill. So we wanted to try to duplicate that anti-squat curve in uh, slash, um, which we have done mathematically. And then the second one is with respect to drag. Um, so what we did there is throughout all the generations of our prototypes is we messed with, um, both either size location and, uh, tooth profile actually. So I guess that's three things. So, um, we really learned a lot about that through 
prototyping and being able to ride all of them. Well, yeah, a couple questions coming to mind out of that. So one, you talked about having a flat anti-squat curve. And I think one of the things that often sort of gets talked about when we're referring to anti-squat on bikes is sort of just where it winds up around sag, but people lose sight of the overall shape of the curve and what's happening in other parts of the travel more often. And um, I guess, why do you see keeping it? And it's it's very common for a lot of bikes to have a, a curve that starts quite high and falls off pretty sharply deeper in the travel is just sort of the way things wind up in many cases, say. Uh, so what do you see as being the advantage of keeping it more consistent and more, well, as you said, flat? Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say um, from from a feeling perspective is when you go to put a lot of force into the pedals, you end up with a snappier feeling bike. So it wants to jump off the line more. Um, and that happens in more situations. And as everyone listening knows, you don't always ride your bike at SAG. <laughs> Many times it moves past that or is above that. So uh, maybe if you're just grinding up a fire road climb set, you're pretty consistently at SAG and not moving a ton. But you're basically the case you're making is that in you're you're pedaling in more dynamic situations where the suspension is moving more widely than it maybe intuitively seems that it might be in short that a fair assessment of that right okay that's interesting um and so okay so we've got flat anti-squat curve around 100 percent um i will also note just as an aside here that in the stated graphs in the press kit you've actually stated the center of gravity height for the system at which you're measuring this stuff which thank you good to have a little <laughs> just it matters. No one does it. So it, it matters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, and then you've also kind of mentioned a lot of stuff to do with the idler pulley and, you know, tooth profile. You've wound up with a 19 tooth idler as it turns out, which of course means that it's not a narrow wide tooth profile. Cause you have to have, an even tooth count to, you know, make that work. Um, and which is certainly not unheard of, but maybe a little less common. I'm assuming you just kind of decided that you just didn't need it for chain retention reasons. And it helped out with drag and what have you to forgo that kind of stuff. Fair assessment. Yeah. Okay. And, but I think it's sort of worth pointing out that a big, part of the kind of whole system here is that you've got a large roller lower idler pulley going on here like a chain guide um as part of the system so tell us about that what's the thinking and need there right um so a couple of points there first i'll answer your question about the lower idler so um Early in the project, we decided that we wanted to try to develop our own lower idler. Many of the existing options are very small, somewhere around 10 teeth or smaller. Um, 
So we reached out to MRP, who's helped us out with some other chain guides for different bikes. We have a good relationship with them and said, can you guys help us with this? A bunch of ideas were exchanged, a bunch of prototypes were created. And what we ended up with was essentially a 14 tooth lower idler. Um, So the bigger diameter helps with the chain bend angle and some efficiency to, to minimize efficiency losses there. But the other thing that I think a lot of people will notice is the location of that 14 tooth idler. And the way that we came to that high location is actually through a spec from SRAM. So SRAM specs a total chain growth throughout travel. Um, I may get this wrong, but I think it's 57 millimeters of total chain growth. Um, It's actually in a publicly available PDF from them. Um, So that's where the location of the idler came from, um, is from SRAM. And of course, we sort of brought the three of us together and created this this lower idler, um, which we're all pretty thrilled about. The other aspect that I'll talk about that we learned through um, all of our prototypes with high pivot idlers and things like that is the center to center different distance between the upper idler and your rear axle matters a lot. So essentially your chain angle um, coming on your chain angle on the tensioned side of the chain. So if, if you think about moving that upper idler really far back, you'd have a very steep chain angle on the tensioned side of the chain. Um, so we actually found that making that distance as long or longer than a standard bike could help with efficiency as well. You're just talking about cross-chaining effectively there as you run through the rear. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, yeah, certainly that checks out. We've kind of heard similar stuff from some other folks who've done high pivot bikes before and kind of that being a key consideration also. Um, and, but I think something that's worth noting amongst all of that is that you've still managed to keep it using a standard length chain in at least all but the XL bike. The XL takes two extra lengths from over, was it 126? But imagine there's a pretty delicate balancing act there. There is. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I would say we kind of lucked out in this one and that we didn't have to iterate it a lot to make sure we stuck with that 126 link chain. So there wasn't actually that much work to, to make that happen. We just, we double checked and said, okay, we're good. Okay, fair enough. And so I guess to sort of keep going with some of the other details of the bike, we've focused, we've gotten pretty nerdy on some of the suspension stuff there, but kind of just tell us about what's going on with the rest of it and everything else. Yeah, right. Um, so a new feature to carry on with the suspension theme is we have a um, bolt-on lower shock mount. There's actually two configurations available. Um, one of them is to make the medium and up a mullet bike. And then the other one is to make the medium and up a full 29 inch wheeled bike. Um, so we learned from a lot of our customers that there's just a distinct preference for 
um, whether they want full 29 or a mullet bike. And the reason I excluded the, the small from that conversation is that bike comes in full 27.5. And well, why keep the little wheels on the small bike? Right. Uh, good question. Um, we have found through fit data with these long travel bikes that that's where, um, that's what suits a small rider best for these long travel bikes, stand over height, um, stack height, things along those, those lines. Yeah. Right. People think about kind of butt to rear tire clearance a lot, but I think the stack height part of it in particular tends to kind of get left out a little bit and you have bigger front wheel, taller axle to crown fork to accommodate said bigger wheel. And yeah, you just end up with a, particularly in a longer travel setting you end up with a very long high front end that just stuff to get over for a small one person so checks out but what's sort of worth noting i guess among the uh 29er or mullet configurations for the medium and up frames uh is that the complete bikes are all mullets and you've got you know you can configure one as a 29er if you're so inclined but where along the line did you decide to sort of commit to doing mullets on the completes and um you know why go that route right um that's a that's a good question um in truth i should probably forward that on to one of our product managers but um we so basically what happened is the product managers asked us for compatibility with both um with the lower shock mount we were able to deliver on that and then we test rode the bike in both and determined that some of the handling advantages that you get from a mullet bike and then like you also mentioned rear wheel clearance to the rider um also made that that choice for us and did you ever kind of think about doing i mean i guess maybe this is a question for the product manager again like you said but doing like a size split on that or something where you did 29ers on the bigger ones. Cause we've seen a lot of folks do that. Um, was that at least bandied about a bit? Um, yes, it, it was bandied about. I don't, I can't tell you truthfully why we ended up on mullet for all the sizes. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't rule that out for a future model year or something like that. But yeah. Fair enough to kind of bring it back around to, your realm on the wheel size thing, particularly given that you're, I guess, well, one, doing a bike with the ability to run either rear wheel size and then two, doing it on a high pivot bike where because of the rearward axle path, you end up with a pretty significant change in chainstay length, depending how you've configured it. Kind of how do you think about balancing those attributes and doing the geometry to accommodate both sort of in general right yeah so i would say the the static chain sailing changes a lot um but it is the same part so sort of the way we we really thought about it was bottom bracket drop versus the rear axle um, and bottom bracket height so what we tried to really maintain between the full 29 and the 27.5 rear wheel was bottom bracket height. Um, they're very close. They're not exactly the same when you swap a wheel and depends on tire size, of course. Um, but that was, that was the real thought process. And part of that is always just 
okay, this is going to have longer chain stays, but our riders expect sort of a certain ride feel out of it. And with a high pivot, we're going to have a growing chain state length anyway. So we tried to make it not too long, but still have that balanced feel. Well, I guess along with all that, we should note that there is now variable chain state length on the bike by frame size too, as you know, part of that whole front to rear balance we were talking about earlier. So, but I guess it would be interesting to hear you talk a bit about how you sort of think about chain stay length for the high pivot layout. Cause like you said, I mean, the static chain stay length is one thing. It of course grows quite a bit at SAG and continues to do so a bit farther into the travel too. Where do you sort of, how do you go about deciding what balance to strike there and that kind of thing? Right. Yeah. Good question. So I think that it's very useful to actually look at the front center versus rear center through travel. Um, of course, SAG is, is where we really um, hone in on. So the large is, oh boy, I forget the front center, but the rear center at SAG in the 29-inch wheel is right about 445 meters, <clears throat> which is one of the... Um, which is one of the lengths that we tested way back in that, that first generation bike. So that's where that name number came from. Um, so as far as throughout travel, if you actually plot the front center versus rear center, um, similar to how you can do like a leverage rate curve, things like that. Um, you can see a progression of the line that way. Okay. So that, I guess, brings me a little bit to something I was going to ask too is, in designing a high pivot bike kind of how are you thinking about the trade-offs in um well axle path and because this you know it's high pivot bike in that it's you know high enough to require an idler pulley for the chain but it's not a wildly high pivot say um and the axle path does come back forward a little bit you know, from its furthest rearward point um, by the end of travel a bit. And um, how much did you experiment with different kind of layouts there and um, think about just how rearward you really wanted your high pivot bike to be? Right. Um, that's a great question. I don't know how much I should say there, but um, we did move the pivot around a lot and test it with it. Um, as a lot of your listeners probably know, most Trek bikes are single pivots. So the wheel, the rear wheel just travels in a circle. So where we put the main pivot on our frame really determines axle path. Um, so I, I can say that throughout session testing and throughout all of our trail bike development, we did move the, the pivot um, around a fair amount. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess don't want to divulge the full range of stuff. Fair enough. But I would be curious to have you comment a little bit, at least sort of in more general strokes on what you see as being the trade-offs in going higher and more rearward versus mitigating that a bit. So I, I would say that if you go too high, then you end up with a lot of weight on the front wheel. Um, like 
deeper in the travel. So um, your balance can shift more when it's what I would call too high. And then if you go really low, then eventually you get to the point where you don't need it either. People are generally familiar, I'm sure, with like the typical benefits of a high pivot bike for bump absorption and whatnot. But right, like it makes sense that you, you know, at some point you just don't have a high pivot bike anymore. But, you know, somewhere in that range, I guess, is where you wanted to land. And by making a high pivot bike, you are to some extent doing what you've kind of described in terms of like pushing the weight balance a little bit forward. Uh, deeper in the travel and so where you know i guess you're just trying to figure out a happy middle ground there more or less yeah yeah that's that's a good conclusion um so we wanted the the straight line speed and the square bump absorption without pushing your your weight too far forward yeah and the, the thing about pushing your weight forward is a good note and i think maybe not the most intuitive one in some ways but basically having the rear center growing through the travel more like the farther back you push the rear axle as you sort of said the more weight that actually ends up putting on the front end just because sort of the again bringing it all back around to front and rear balance again unless you're kind of moving rearward to counteract that a bit you uh just end up if like your body is staying static in the middle folding which is of course not entirely realistic for how a mountain bike works but um you're yeah you're you're pushing the weight bias forward more especially as the fork comes up too and shortens the front center so um these things get tricky there's a lot going on here um <laughs> yeah yeah right so the analogy i like to paint with a lot of people again keeping a, a static center of mass is if you had if you just took your existing bike and you put a 2000 millimeter chainstay length on it all your weight would be on the front wheel or not all of it most of your weight would be on the front yeah. wheel. yeah most of it yeah, yeah. right yeah take it mm-hmm. to the extreme and right okay so i guess one other thing that, well, I guess we can peel back the curtain a little bit. We were chatting about this at Crankworks mm-hmm. well, a month and a half ago, whatever yeah. that was now. And I got a, well, tried to get a first ride on the bike. It, a little bit of a mechanical mishap that uh, made that not pan out as well as it might have. But you were talking a bunch about anti-rise and high pivot bikes and the, in broad strokes, going to a high pivot also just increases anti-rise, generally speaking. So how do you think about anti-rise in relation to all this other stuff we're talking about and what to target there? Right. So um, this bike has a floating brake arm, just like most Trek full suspension bikes. We have our ABP suspension on it. So that allows us to somewhat tune the anti-rise of the bike independently from the rest of the suspension kinematics. Um, So what we tried to do here is, again, just like anti-squat, not create too much weight shift um, when braking. So 
just about every mountain bike on the market has a telescoping fork on it. And under braking, nearly all of those compress. So just with a, a standard fork, you'll get some weight shift forward. So what we did on this bike is we tried to keep from having a big weight shift forward when you just when you are braking. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of anti-rise numbers generally, what are we what does that kind of mean that you're talking about? Yeah, again, this is this is a little bit higher than a typical Trek bike. Um, the thought being that this would be on some steeper terrain where you're braking harder and things like that. So the <clears throat> anti-rise on this bike um, around SAG, that's the way I got a hedge right now because I can't picture the graph. I don't have it up right now. It's about 100% around SAG. Yeah, having it up um, starts off at a little over 100%. It's a little under 100 at sag and falls off to about 65 by the end of travel very straight line um so yeah i mean and a lot of high pivot bikes have had way 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 more anti-rise than that and um so yeah that's still you know higher than some but bikes generally speaking but um moderated quite a bit particularly compared to a lot of true high single pivots basically and uh so um kind of keeping things in check there too what else should we cover about the design of the bike there's some more stuff i think to hit on but what seems like important stuff so we continued with headset cups that we developed for our fuel ex so uh users can buy a new set of cups and actually get head head tube angle adjustment out of those so it's about a degree um, plus or minus. So nominal head tube angle on this bike is 63.5. So you could add or subtract a degree from there. Well, keeping the adjustability theme going, we also haven't touched on the shock progression adjustability too. Floor is yours, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you, you know you know this one better than me. Um, so again, continuing with features that we've seen on other recent bikes. Uh, I think we started that with a session. No, I know we started that with a session. We have a shock progression adjustment. So you have roughly a 20 and a 25% position. And that's basically just a flip chip at the lower shock mount that toggle between two. And well, I think that's probably a lot of the main designs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we we uh, we continued with in-frame storage on this bike. Um, another new feature that we have that um, a lot of people have liked so far is we have a fender that attaches to the seat stays. Um, really mimics the a lot of the fork fenders that we're seeing from um, the major fork players. And, and oh, another feature that. I think our whole team is really proud of in particular is the dropper post insertion. Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but we have some size medium riders on staff and they're able to ride 200 millimeter droppers on their bikes. Yeah. Just nice straight seat tube without stuff in the middle there. So, um, yep, that's sweet. Uh, and I mean, I think that's, 
kind of most of the high level stuff. Um, we'll have, you know, uh, first looks up on the site as of this podcast airing uh, and some flash flash with my early impressions on it have been spending some time on the bike more successfully than that first crack in uh, at crankworks um just <laughs> i'm joking this wasn't anything that was the bike's fault it was an issue with the front brake on it um but uh so far so good having it it's it's working out nicely um would be curious to hear you talk about kind of just how you are personally choosing to configure your own bike given all of the adjustability that we've talked about and um a lot of options so what are you doing with yours yeah good question so I've read it, I've had the chance to ride the bike in a bunch of different areas. Um, so I would say the main thing that I do to change the way the ride feel is, is I switch to downhill tires. Um, as we all know, that makes a huge difference to the way a bike rides. Um, but my headset cups are nominal. I have a vivid rear shock on it and I keep going back and forth on 29 versus 27.5 rear wheel. Um, I like both of them for different reasons. So can't make a choice there. What do you sort of notice as being the big pros and cons there? So I'll start with the the mullet bike, the 27.5 rear. Um, I find that in steep terrain in particular, it's a little bit easier to make it turn in. So both just initiating turns and also changing direction. Um, and then the 29 inch rear wheel just carries speed better. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like the typical trade-offs I've thus far only ridden the bike in the stock mullet configuration. I've got a set of the 29er shock mounts to experiment with, but haven't gotten there yet. Um, only got it a little over a week ago, so haven't got a huge amount of time on it yet and still just, getting things sorted out in the stock setup first, but uh, we'll be covering both in the full review in a bit once I'm able to log a bunch more time on it. So stay tuned for that down the line here. Well, Matt, I think that's been a pretty complete run through on the bike. Anything else we should touch on before I let you get back to it here? I don't think so. I think we touched on everything and you know how to get a hold of me in the future. I do. So this has been fun. Thanks for the taking the time to chat and giving us all that info on the new bike. And um, yeah, like I said, folks, check it out the first look on the website that's up as of right now and uh, more on it to come in the full review in a bit. So thanks again, Matt. This has been great. Thanks, David. I appreciate it too. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Matt for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.